Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, we'll read the passage James just read. It's called Worship. But uh, before we do that, we're in the beginning of a mini-series about things that Jamie Ward needs to know and Jenny uh, Heath needs to know and Dale Corbin needs to know and James Mitchell needs to know, that TBFers need to know. And last week we looked at the ultimate topic, God, the triune God himself, and we talked about uh, some of the attributes of God and some uh, dynamics about his reality and said that the ultimate expression of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at what TBFers need to know about Islam. So we're going to focus on that. And I guess the uh, first thing I would say is that the word Islam means submission to the God of Islam, Allah. It's the second largest world religion. Uh, how there are 1.8, 1.8 billion with a B. That's a thousand million people that embrace this religion worldwide, founded by Muhammad. And in round numbers, Muslims make up about one quarter of the world population. According to uh, Pew Research, Christianity, Christians make about one third, just a little less than a third of the world population, but Muslims are almost a quarter, and they are definitely the fastest growing religion. But it's interesting because in uh, 610 A.D., Muhammad, who was distressed by the poly, by the polytheism that he found in the on the Arabian Peninsula, had been going to the desert to pray and meditate. And according to Muslim understanding, in 610 A.D., the angel Gabriel came to Muhammad and began a series of inputs that will later be recited by Muhammad and written down shortly after his death, and that's called the Quran. And it's interesting to realize that happened in 610 when we read what Paul says in 49 AD. And he says to the Corinthian believers who are listening to Jewish believers who say, you can't just believe in Jesus and be saved, you're a Gentile. You have to pre-qualify by embracing the law of Moses and becoming a convert to Judaism. And then you can believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. So by adding that unnecessary uh, prerequisite, Paul is going berserk. This is the only letter he writes, and he writes 13 of them, Jason, where he doesn't say something nice about the recipients. I mean, he Paul even says things nice, nice things about the Corinthians, okay? And they're all messed up. But when you're deserting or watering down the gospel of grace, there's there's no remedy for that. You have to be had cold water in your face. So Paul says, I'm amazed that all y'all, as plural, are so quickly deserting him, not just me, not Paul's ministry that he preached Jesus, but Jesus himself, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, but there's not really another gospel. There's really not another gospel. Only some are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, saying you're not really saved until you convert to Judaism, and then you can believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. And then Paul says, but even if we, Paul and uh, his apostolic group, should come back and preach a different gospel, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be accursed. As I've said before, so I'll say again, if any man, any source, angel or man, is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you've received from us, that person needs to be accursed. So we're going to look at the the religion of Islam and tell you what you need to know about it in a nutshell. 
albeit a coconut shell. But uh, it's, it's interesting to realize the beginning of the revelations to Muhammad started when an, an angel came and told him everybody else was wrong. So we'll uh, keep that in mind. Let's pray for teachability, and as is our custom, and we're happy to do it, let's pray for our military peace officers and firefighters. And uh, Dave Stribling, lead us in prayer in that direction, please. Thanks, David. Abstract thought warmer upper. Uh, these are cartoons that are kind of funny, but probably shouldn't be funny at all. Uh, we've got some odd-looking police officer talking to some odd-looking clergy person after a church service. And the clergy person says, shortly after he hugged me and said it was the best sermon on giving he'd ever heard, I noticed my wallet was missing. Now, here's a, a guy uh, who's at a church service, and it's kind of like, what if you what if you gave a party and nobody came? You know, he's the only one at the church service. So he's thinking, I'm either early for the next service, late for the last service, or I didn't get the tweet that the church down the road has better donuts. And that's about all it takes, folks. And then um, 10 minutes into a sermon, which the same pastor had preached verbatim, in 2017, this guy on the front row says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I distinctly remember ignoring this same sermon two years ago. <laughs> now, we talked about um, what you need to know about God last week. We focused on the attributes of God and the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the second person of the Trinity, who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, is the unique person of the universe that uh, if you want to know who God is, you look to Jesus. Today we're going to think about, is the God of the Bible and the God of Islam the same God? Now, a lot of our elites at academia and political levels think that that's a nice thing to say, that ultimately Christianity and the Jews and the Muslims are all uh, worshiping the same God. No self-respecting Muslim, and there's 1.8 billion of them in the world, you might find one that's not just totally out to lunch on this theology. There is, you cannot find a Muslim who's going to say Allah is the same God that the Christians uh, worship and believe in, or that the Jews worship and believe in. They don't believe that. Uh, Islam says no. We'll think about what the Bible says on that issue, as if you can't figure out where I'm going to come down on that one. But uh, let's break our time down into three sections. We're going to talk about and compare and contrast Christianity and Islam. Number one, they're not different paths up the same mountain. Forget that. And they're all different, completely different in all seven major doctrinal areas that we talk about all the time. Then we'll do a brief historical background and then a biblical bottom line. So let's start by looking and comparing Christianity and Islam. Now, to me, genius is taking really complicated stuff and simplifying it without distorting it. And Stephen Prothero, who's probably the best-known American religious studies scholar, has obliterated the thought that had predominated religious studies at an academic level for the last 200 years, that all the major religions are just different paths up the same mountain. Prothero, who's not an evangelical Christian, he teaches at Boston University, in written books like Religious Literacy and God is Not One, says they're not climbing the same mountain. They're not different paths up the same mountain. The major religions are all climbing different mountains. And he broke down the major religions into a problem they're addressing, 
a solution they offer to that problem and a technique or a means whereby you access the solution. So using his categories and slightly tweaking the content, uh, he would say the problem that Christianity is dealing with, the mountain that Christianity is climbing, uh, dealing with and wanting us to climb or get to the top of, I should say, is sin, our personal, relational, and spiritual separation from God, and it's our fault. That's the problem Christianity deals with. Islam, the problem isn't really sin, it's more ignorance and just a self-sufficiency, uh, which condemns us, okay? Now, that may not sound that, that much different, and you could say, well, yeah, I think unsaved people before they come to Christ are ignorant in, in certain th- things and very self-sufficient in most cases, but it, it's, it's more than just that. The solution, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, summit that Christianity offers is salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's a relational thing. It's not just believing certain facts and doing certain rituals. It's entering into a relationship. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become sons of God, right? That kind of thing. Uh, for Islam, they're saying the solution is earning admission to heaven. Now, when we receive salvation as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not, it's not like he gives us a ticket, a spiritual ticket, and if we hold on to the ticket when we die, then we hand him the ticket. You know, if you were going to take your kid, if you're going to take 45 people to Israel, would you give them all their tickets today? Heck no, half of you people would lose them. Are you kidding? I mean, I wouldn't trust them. I don't trust myself keeping them myself, but you know, Corey Tenboom told the story about, uh, hey, Dad, if I get arrested, I'm not sure I'm going to have enough courage you know, to stand up for the faith. And he said, God will give you grace for the place. You remember when I used to send you and your sister on the train to see Grandma every summer? I wouldn't give you your plane ticket a week before you went to Grandma's. I'd hand it to you just before you stepped on the train. God will give you the grace so you can be what he wants you to be in whatever situation you have to face to his glory when it happens. But when we're saved, he doesn't just... Say, uh, you know, uh, when you die, I might let you into heaven, depending on what your standing is that day. Uh, for us, salvation is, regeneration is the, res- the, the impartation of eternal life to the believing sinner. It's a present abiding possession, and it involves forgiveness of all the sins Jesus paid for legally, which is all of them. And, uh, you know, the ability now to please God with a dynamic Christian life, because we've got a whole new infusion of life in our hearts. Uh, Islam is just about trying to do enough, push enough buttons that God might let you into heaven. Sin, forgiveness, relationship, that's not even talked about. The, the God of Islam is not interested in having a relationship with you or anybody else, okay? He's way too remote and distant for that. It's a very, you know, it's like... A, you know, you work for, uh, I worked for a law firm between Seminary and, and Shreveport, Shank, Irwin, Conant, and Williamson. And I never really had a chat with Mr. Shank. Now, I had to, I had to get there at 7 in the morning from Garland and have the paper on his desk at 7. Now, he didn't come in until like 9 or 10. Of course, he was like 90 years old, and he deserved that. But he had no interest in, interest in me personally, but he signed my checks, right? That's kind of the way Allah is. We were, Wednesday night, we were reading from Zephaniah, um, and, you know, it's that passage that tells believers that God is going to be thrilled to have you in the millennium, you know? Uh, Allah doesn't think like that. Uh, the technique that Christianity offers, or uh, how, what must I do to be saved, is faith alone in Christ alone. GW stands for good works. Good works are the 
fruit and not the root. In Islam, you've got to crank out enough merit that Allah will give you a uh, entrance into heaven uh, ticket when you die, and you'll never know before that happens if you have enough merit, unless you're a violent fundamentalist. And, and Anthony, if you're a violent fundamentalist, if you die in jihad, physical jihad, killing other people or dying yourself, then you know you're going to get a ticket. That's the only way you get a golden ticket. So they're not climbing the same mountain. They're not saying the same thing. And they're different in all the major doctrinal areas that we stress around here. Uh, as we've said many times, you know, TBF is a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds united by our faith in Christ, a desire to grow spiritually by feeding on the scripture and being involved in fellowship, worship, prayer, and evangelism, world missions, and there are like seven key doctrinal things that hold us together. Uh, not everybody is premillennial, pre-tribulational, but their eschatology here. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But I mean, uh, uh, but we all believe in a little second advent. But that's our kind of baseline, uh, big seven, uh, what's AIM stand for? Absolute irreducible minimum. For, when you look at church history, Natalie, for 2,000 years, these are the seven truths that God has consistently taught through the scriptures to believers of all colors, uh, countries, cultures, and denominations, and generations, who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are. We're all GIs, guilty with an inability to save ourselves. What Christ has done, paid for our sins, rose again. He's the issue and issue of every life. Eternal, what we must do, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. What Christ will do, second advent, literal, in human history in God's terms and what the Bible is. It's our source. It's inerrant, inspired. It's indispensable. But when you compare what Christianity says about those seven things to what Islam says, it's a whole different deal. And let's just walk through those. The first of the seven areas is who God is generally. What would you say? Uh, well, I think you'd say he's true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, loving, immutable, veracity, Everlasting life. How do I know that? Because I know two juniors live. You know, that's just that. But uh, God's personal. He's triune, one God and three persons. Uh, what does uh, Islam say? Islam says this. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 171 in the Quran. O people of the scripture, if you're wanting to hear what God says in scripture, everybody listen up to this. Do not commit excess in your religion or say about Allah except the truth. Don't say this. They're translating from Arabic to English, so it's kind of rough. Uh, the Messiah. Listen, you may not know this. Muslims believe Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ, but they totally redefine it. It's kind of like the Jehovah's Witness who told me, to go to heaven, you've got to obey the gospel, which means obey the call and trust Christ in the gospel, in biblical parlance. But I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, we've got to obey all the laws and commandments of the Bible. That's what he meant. Here, when they say Jesus is the Messiah, they just mean he's an exalted Jewish prophet who predicted the coming of Muhammad. Now, do you, do you read that in the New Testament anywhere? It's not there, uh, nor do you see anything about Muhammad in the Old Testament. But the problem is, although those, those books, the Old Testament and the New Testament books, were originally inspired by God, within a few generations they got corrupted by people who did not want to uh, emphasize that Muhammad was the ultimate spokesman and there's only one God and one person. So uh, you know, they kind of affirm Judeo-Christianity while totally redefining it. 
And they will use the term Messiah or Christ for Jesus, but that just means he's an exalted Jewish prophet, not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So do not commit excess in your religion. There's only one God. You don't need three is what it's saying. Uh, the Messiah, uh, Jesus, was the son of Mary, but nothing more, just a human being, was but a messenger, lowercase m, of Allah and his word, which he directed to Mary, and a soul from him. That is a soul created at the command of Allah, just another human being. So believe in Allah and his messengers. And do not say three, and some translations say do not say trinity. This is a reference to the trinity. Now remember, on a timeline, we've got Christ here, and moving toward 2019, we've got Muhammad here. We've got the Quran hundreds of years, 600 plus years after the events of the gospel. And so they're saying, don't say three, don't say God exists in three persons. Desist, it's better for you. Indeed, Allah is but one God. Exalted is he above having a son. He doesn't have a son. He's not the father. Uh, There's just one God and one person. To him belongs whatever is in the heavens and whatever is on earth. And sufficient is Allah as disposer of affairs. Now we're suggesting that's wrong. Is the God of Allah the God of Christianity? What does the Quran say in Shura 4, 171? It says there's no such thing as a trinity. God doesn't have a son. Now, I kind of read God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Isn't that what it says somewhere? Is that New Testament, right? Yeah, I think that's in there somewhere. Um, last time I was in Amman, which actually was 2007, it was a long time ago, uh, as a, you think our flights are bad to go to Israel? My flight from Amman to come back home left at 2 o'clock in the morning. So I'm in the airport, and they've got a nice airport. And I bought this book, What You Need to Know About Islam. Or what Do You Know About Islam? Question by Dr. Muhammad Ali. I'll, I didn't. I, I left off the last name. His name is Muhammad Ali Al-Kuhi. So you got excited there when you thought a boxer had written a book, right? But it's kind of a question-answer format, and it's, it's really fascinating to read. And he says this about that. Uh, what is what is God according to Islam? God in Islam is as he described himself in the Holy Quran. Say, he is God, the one and only, the eternal. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and there is none equal to him. That's the quote from uh, Shura 1, verse 4. Uh, and now the author writes, God is one. He has no partners. He has no equals. He is the one, not three in one, not one in three. He is the eternal. He is not a father of any son, nor is he the son to any father. So the next time you hear on CNN or Fox News some talking head who's got a PhD and is is talking about religious tolerance and saying, well, we all know the God of Islam is really the same God as the Jews and the Christians have, you got to say, no Muslim believes that. If you think you're making points with Muslims, you're not. That's her- that's rank heresy. Uh, and it should be decried as such by Christians, too. But we try to be too nice and say, oh, maybe it's kind of saying the same thing. I got some of the details wrong. They get it all wrong. Okay, We're looking at the seven major doctrinal areas. They strike out. In baseball, you need three strikes. When it comes to doctrine here, we're going to give you seven strikes. Okay, and They're going to they're going to swing and miss seven times. So that's the first one, right? Now, who God is generally. Let's move to the second major doctrinal tenet of Christianity, who Jesus is specifically. Now, we emphasize this kind of a theme verse of the A through Z system, James. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory, 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that goes back to what the first couple of verses said. In the beginning was the Word, a title for whom? Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already was as the eternal second person of the ontological trinity. In the beginning, the Word already was, and the Word was with God the Father as a separate person, so they didn't need to create Hal or Brad so that God could be happy. They're perfectly happy. They don't need us. We need them. They don't need us. And the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was deity himself. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into creation through him, and apart from him, nothing came in to be that has come to be. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's what Christianity teaches. What does Islam teach? That he was a dirty, horrible, Jewish false prophet. That's not what they say. Uh, that he was a satanically possessed false prophet. That's what the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day said. Muslims are much more charitable. They think Jesus is the greatest prophet of Allah of all time except for Muhammad, that his ministry was to prepare the way for Muhammad, and if we had the original New Testament text, they would clearly maintain that, but we don't have those that have all been corrupted, and they took all that stuff out because the Christians and the Jews don't want uh, the world to embrace the teachings, the ultimate teachings, the capstone teachings of God, Allah, through Muhammad, right? So they believe that Jesus was a pre-Muslim prophet who anticipated and predicted the coming of Muhammad, and that's what he was. Uh, and that's pretty, that's pretty exalted. That's like being what, Lou Gehrig to Babe Ruth or something. I mean, that's pretty good. Except if he's the unique God-man savior to say anything less than that is blasphemy, which it is, right? So you know that. Uh, by the way, talking about the deity of Christ, how are you going to prove that from your Bible, Abby? You know how, because some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. New Testament never claimed Jesus was God. That was just something that came later at the Council of, uh, Nicaea in 325. Well, I would say think Jesus Christ 1-2 which stands for John 1, Colossians 2. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word Jesus was God. That's good. Colossians 2, 9, Jesus Christ 1, 2, says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So that's good. But the problem with those two verses, Dustin, is somebody's going to say, well, John 1 is what John said about Jesus, and Colossians 2 is what Paul said about Jesus, but Jesus never said anything about being God. Think of him holding up an 8 by 10 glossy photograph of himself. That's John 8. In John 10, in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day through the eyes of faith, believing that I was going to come. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And that's John 8, 35, what happened? They took up stones to stone him because that's blasphemy. They knew that he was saying he preexisted Abraham and I am as the form of the Lord, uh, Yahweh. He's claiming to be Yahweh there. Uh, that's John 8. John 10, Jesus just says, I and the Father are one. That's verse 30, John 10, 30. And the syntax there doesn't mean uh, one and the same person, but one and the same in characteristics. Jesus is not God the Father, Connie. He's a different person, but he has all the attributes of God. The two juniors live attributes, okay? So we're looking at the major doctrines of Christianity, comparing them with Allah, with with uh, what uh, Islam says about uh, Allah and other features. And we looked at who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, what's number three, who we are. Uh, we are GIs. We're guilty with a lack of ability to save ourselves. Look at Romans 3. Somebody said if you are a theologian, your Bible automatically will automatically open up to Romans 3 because you spend so much time in Romans 3, 4, and 5. But look at uh, 
Romans 3.23, who are we deep down? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? We all wonder about that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what it is. Uh, put your name in there, okay? For Janice Skinner has sinned and she's fallen short of the glory of God. Steve, you already knew that, right? Uh, it's hard for me to believe she could sin, but as a theologian, I know that you are totally depraved and corrupt. So, uh, but I mean, I think you're about as perfect as I can, as I can tell. But I don't follow you around except every other Tuesday afternoon, so just watch out. Uh, yeah. But, so that's bad. That's the bad news. You gotta get the bad news for your interest in the good news. Look at Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God in a place of punishment, and we all qualify because he just told us in 3.23 we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But don't stop at the comma there in, in Romans 6.23. For the wage of sin is death, but, that, that conjunction of contrast, Allah, in fact, that's Allah, and it's interesting, I just thought about it. Allah, A-L-L-A, is but in Greek, New Testament Greek, and Allah is a different word, it sounds the same, homonym. But the free gift of God is what? For sinners, is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Go back to Romans 3. Let's look at verse 20. I love this. After, for three chapters, demonstrating that Jews and Gentiles and religious people and irreligious people are sinners and they can't earn or deserve their way into God's blessed presence and be forgiven by their own works or merit, not even the law of Moses can do that. Romans 3.20 says, by the works of the law even, and that's a, a st- list of do's and don'ts, 613 of them that God himself gave to Moses for the old people of God, Old Testament people of God. By the works of the law, no flesh, no human being will justify it in God's sight. But through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. So once you realize you're a sinner, you need a savior, right? But now apart from the law, verse 21, the righteousness of God, which is what? Uh, Bo West needs and what Michelle Franks needs and what Brad McCoy needs, the perfect righteous standing that we can't crank out our own, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested and fully implemented to the work of Christ, being witnessed by, consistent with the Old Testament law and prophets. I'm talking about verse 22, the righteousness of God, which is given to sinners who believe through faith in Jesus Christ, and is given to all who believe, no matter what color, country, or culture you're in, for there's no distinction because we've all sinned and we can't do it ourselves. But those who believe, verse 24, are justified as a gift by his unmerited favor through the redemption, the work of Christ on the cross for us, which is in Christ Jesus. And then my favorite verse in Romans, Romans 4, 5, since we're in the neighborhood. But, but to the one who does not work and try to earn salvation through any world religion, including Christianity, but believes in rests in active receptive trust in him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So that's kind of who we are. Who we are is we're sinners desperately in need of a Savior, and God loved the world so much he's provided that Savior. What did Christ do? Now this is an interesting one. This is the core of the gospel, right? First Corinthians 15 says, here's the gospel, Kyleen. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and rose again according to the scripture, Right? So what did Christ do? Well, according to Islam, he prepared the way for Muhammad as a promotional spokesman and prophet. They also say Jesus did not die on the cross over and out. And here's the explanation of the end of the, of the ministry of Jesus. According to Muslim teaching, uh, Jesus was hated by the dirty Jews, and they set him up, uh, and they kind of framed him before the Romans. And so the dirty Romans condemned him to crucifixion, 
but somewhere between Pontius Pilate's judgment seat and Golgotha in the hazy early morning, somebody, Jesus managed to get away. Somebody who looked like Jesus, and it doesn't say exactly who, but most Muslims think it's probably either Simon of Cyrene, the guy who carried the cross part way, or Judas Iscariot. Somebody was crucified that day, but Allah, by definition, would never let an exalted prophet like Jesus die such a horrible death. So they say Jesus was not crucified, period, over and out, and he in fact did not die a few months after this, he ascended to heaven. So watch this, Kitty. The, the Muslim, and listen, the guy on CNN or whatever is going to say, hey, we're all saying the same thing. You know, I'm an imam, and I've been an imam for 20 years. We believe Jesus is the Christ. We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. We believe in the ascension of Jesus. We believe Jesus was a mighty spokesman from God. That all sounds good. Put it in context. Yeah, they do believe he was supernaturally conceived. They do believe he ascended to heaven. They don't believe he died, period. He certainly didn't die on a cross to bear your sins on the cross. God, God, Allah's not interested in debt payment for sin. He's interested in you cranking out and you're capable of saving yourself. Just get with the program. So you gotta, you gotta unpack what people say because some of these folks are very skillful in the way they describe what they're saying. But now you know. You won't be surprised when you find out that Muslims believe Jesus was the Messiah. But they redefine Messiah. They believe he was conceived supernaturally. They believe he ascended to heaven. But they don't believe he died and certainly didn't die on the cross to pay for sin. So what Christ did was to be a superlative spokesman for the ultimate capstone prophet, Muhammad. Nothing more, nothing less. Right? Um what 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 must we do to get to heaven? Uh, well, according to Islam, you've got to properly submit to Allah by living a life centered on the five pillars. And we'll walk you through the five pillars in a minute. But let me contrast what they're saying to what we're saying. Now, I, I cited this verse last week at the end of the message because it has all three members of the Trinity. We're talking about the Trinity in a salvation context here. But this is a great passage. But when the kindness of God our Savior, and we're talking about God the Father as the architect of salvation, the author of the plan, and his love for mankind, the John 3.16, God so loved the world, God the Father reference. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is the impartation of eternal life to the believing sinner, right? Uh, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's the third person. He's the activating uh, agent of salvation. He draws us. He opens our eyes. He convicts of sin. He regenerates us. Uh, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. He's the active agent of salvation. He actually makes the atonement, and he's the object of saving faith. That being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs of everlasting life. The most important part of that long sentence is he saved us, okay? He's the object, or he's the subject of the sentence, right? Produce the action of the verb. Us, we're the direct object. We receive the action of the verb. So watch this. It's not based on our deeds which we've done in righteousness. That's exactly opposite to what Islam says. In order to be saved, and you're able to save yourself, just get with the program. Just submit to Allah properly, and we'll show you how. And it's centered on the five pillars. Uh, Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but who believes, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works. You've got nothing to brag about. John 1, 12 says, As many as receive him, the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. So, yeah, let's talk about the uh, what we've got to do. 
Notice number five there. According to Scripture, we're saved by God's grace through faith, which is a rational act but not a meritorious work. According to Islam, we're saved by our merit and our works through the system. And the system centers on what's called the five pillars of Islam. Confession of faith, prayer five times a day facing Mecca. Those are recited prayers. Um, giving money to the mosque for the poor. Uh, you're supposed to give more than that, but you're given a set percentage to do for the poor. Fasting during the daylight hours of the holy month of Ramadan. And then if you can possibly afford it, you need to go to Saudi Arabia to Mecca at least once in your life. Now, this is a fancier graphic I've found, and uh, Anthony can make even a better graphic, but Shahada is the first one. You don't know the Arabic words, but uh, confession of faith, prayer five times a day, giving to the poor, because Islam from the get-go wasn't just a religion, it was a societal conception that Muhammad began in the city called Mecca, uh, Medina, actually, and then he came back to Mecca. Fasting during the daylight hours, they eat at night during that month. They don't all starve to death in the Hajj. So let's talk about some of that. I took that picture uh, as we were driving from Amman down to Petra many years ago. And I have no objection to a guy in a little village, that's a concrete block, little uh, convenience store that we're going to pass. I have no objection to him putting something in English there, but nobody in that town reads English. Why would they put a, a sign like that? Uh, in the middle of nowhere, about three hours south of Amman, about four, three or two hours away from Petra. Because that's the road all the tourists drive from Amman to get to Petra, right? So this is a statement of their confession of faith. The first pillar is confession of faith. In a confession of faith, in Arabic, you memorize it, but in English, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. He's the ultimate messenger. All the ones don't really count that much. Even Jesus is the best, next best thing, was just pointing to Muhammad, and he's pointing to you can save yourself by getting with the program. Uh, so that's the first pillar of Islam. Second one is prayer five times a day facing Mecca. And as I say, you know, you, when, you're, when you're like three weeks in Amman, you can hear that uh, call to prayer uh, all over the city five times a day, just before the sun comes up, just after the sun goes down, and three times during the day morning, noon, and afternoon. And if you're kind of walking across the street to the grocery store or something, about a third of the people when the call to prayer comes out because there are mosques all over the place. So you can always hear it in a big city. Uh, about a third of them stop, drop with their prayer uh, carpet, and they face Mecca and they pray. Uh, about a third just go inside, and I guess they're praying inside. And about a third just totally ignore it. Just continue driving, walking, talking, laughing, and that kind of thing. But an observant Muslim will pray five times a day, and the uh, the call to prayer will go out from local mosques to help you remember when you're supposed to do that. Now, this is a, a picture I took in our hotel room in, in Amman. Debbie's in, in my room, and it was on the ceiling of our hotel room, and it's called the Qibla, and it because we're like on the sixth floor of a hotel. It is a little. It's in the corner of a room. And it tells you what direction Mecca is. So when the product, uh, when the call to prayer comes out. You can get on your knees and face Mecca. It's very important you face Mecca uh, when you when you pray those five times a day, right? Uh, money to the mosque for the poor. Like I said, Islam has always been not just a religious choice; it's always been a societal concept. Because uh, Muhammad grew up in Mecca, but in 522 he was asked uh, to leave. They didn't want him, 
And a, a city several hundred miles north of Mecca called Medina uh, was kind of uh, having all kinds of local problems with criminals and gangs and bad people. So they asked Muhammad to come up, not just to be the leading clergyman of the small city, but to be the police chief, the mayor, the leader of the militia, and everything. I mean, just come over and just you know, just make the trains run on time and, and allow us to be able to have our kids walk to school without being raped and murdered. And so Muhammad made the first Islamic society in Mecca beginning in 622. That's when they start their calendar, uh, 622. Not when he got his first vision in 610, but when he moved to Mecca and he took the entire society over, and he made everything, made the trains run, trains run on time. So that doesn't mean that somebody who's an engineer at Halliburton is expecting the United States to run under Sharia law uh, next week. But their conception of the way Islam works is it's supposed to influence and eventually control all of society. That's their conception. I mean, from the top down, Christians have always felt like, you know, our job is not necessarily to change society, although I think you should vote and be aware of all those things going on. But ours is like God changes society one soul at a time, right? One heart at a time, and it works from the ground up. Rather than Paul saying, down with the Roman Caesars, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And 300 years later, you got a Roman Caesar who is Christ, uh, who, who is a Christian, who does embrace Christ. So that's the way that works, but not for them. So from the, from, from day one, they're very interested, from day one, they've been very interested in societal ills. And one of the five pillars is, you're supposed to give on a sliding scale based on your income, starting at 2.5% of your income. You're required to give that much money to the mosque, and they'll take care of the poor with it. Now, they'll, you also have to pay for other you know, gifts. It's kind of like people talk about tithes and offerings. You've got a certain requirement, and then offerings on top of that. And it's more complicated than that for New Testament Christians, but it's kind of like that. You're required to give you 2.5 plus, depending on where you are, for the poor, and then you're supposed to give more for uh, you know, for the preacher's salary and the preacher's cars and the preacher's houses and stuff like that, which is great. Yeah, we need two or three houses, you know, so we can kind of, you know, uh, get away from the uh, challenges of, you know, reading your Bible and praying all day, which is what we do. Um, we do a few more things than that, but that's important. Fasting during the daylight hours of this month of Ramadan, you're going to hear the shorthand of that is the, the Muslims all fast during the month of Ramadan. And, and I used to think, man, they don't eat for a whole month. I mean, that's pretty, that's impressive. I mean, it's not easy. Right, but no, just during the daylight hours. Once the sun goes down, they they eat a pretty big meal, and at the end of the month, they have a big two or three day celebration where they have you know parties and a lot of fun because they're kind of it's like Lent. It's like Lent for uh, for me and Zane. Now me and Zane love Lent because when Lent kicks in, the Catholic Church in Marlowe has this Friday night fish fry, which as non-Catholics we enjoy uh, very much. Right, so Zane actually gives me this. This sheet of paper every week telling me how many days until Lent, because that's when the fish fry is going to start. I think I'm making it up. <laughs> he gave me that this morning. Ten days to Lent. We got a little short timers calendar on the wall. Lent, uh, he keeps me on the straight and narrow. And then what's the fifth pillar? The fifth pillar is a religious pilgrimage to Mecca. That's where Abraham started. He goes to Medina and starts the first society. Then he comes back in 630. Unfortunately for him, dies two years later. But Mecca is the epicenter of the religion. So let me show you what that looks like. Um, all this is based on a lunar calendar, so it kind of moves around. There's no fixed date. But the, the center of this uh, large amphitheater, and I guess now it's really a physical theater kind of thing with colonnaded buildings around it, 
is, is called the Kaaba. And the Kaaba supposedly was built by Adam and Eve and then renovated by Abraham. But then it became a shrine to polytheistic pagan gods. And when Muhammad comes back to Mecca in 630 from Medina, he, he cleanses it. And now they've got a beautiful ornamental uh, tapestry on top of it. And so you circle that seven times and you do all these different rituals during uh, uh, the, uh, the Hajj every year. Now, what's the seventh and final essential of the Christian faith? I'd say what, what scripture, I guess it's, we're on number six, aren't we? What's, what Christ going to do? Let me slow down. Who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are, what Christ did, what we do to access what Christ did, salvation by grace through faith, what Christ will do. And what are we saying is the absolute irreducible minimum the Bible says about Christ will do. Literal, bodily, supernatural second advent. That's the, that's the absolute essential. Now, you can see, if you're reading ahead, you can see what they're saying. Most Muslims believe Jesus is coming back, not to establish his millennial kingdom, but to establish worldwide Islam. Uh, the Quran makes it clear Muhammad is not the one who's going to come back from heaven and end history as we've known it and set up worldwide Islam. He's going to let somebody else do that for him, and then he's going to come down and take over. See, And most Muslims, and the Quran doesn't say who it is, but it describes him in ways that sounds a lot like Isa, which is Jesus in Arabic. So uh, I found this book on Amazon. It's written by a, uh, a uh, Muslim clergyman, uh, Harun Yahya, whatever his name is. I can't pronounce his name. Why should I even try? But I can say Amazon pretty well. Uh, this is the uh, what Amazon says about this book. Jesus will return. Because if you just saw that, if you saw that title, you'd think it's another book about the Bible prophecy. But uh, in the Quran, there is an explicit reference to the second coming of Christ, but it doesn't explicitly say it's going to be him. It's going to be a second coming of a glorious person who is Christ. Uh, peace be upon him to the world. This is also confirmed in the Hadith, which is kind of a secondary scripture. It talks about some of the words and deeds of Muhammad. The realization of some of the information revealed in the Quran about Jesus can only be made possible when Jesus returns. So that's kind of interesting. Most Christians don't know that they, many Muslims believe Jesus will come back, but as a pre-Muhammad glorified prophet who's going to set up worldwide Islam. And then, of course, what the Bible is. And as I've said, uh, Islam says when the books were written by Moses or by David or by Zephaniah or Zechariah, they were exactly what God, Allah wanted, and they were anticipating Muhammad. But within a few generations, the Jews changed all that because they didn't want anybody to know. And the New Testament books, same thing. They originally predicted, had Jesus making predictions about Muhammad, but the disciples took all, all that out of there so they could kind of take over the system is the idea. So they're not climbing the same mountain. And in fact, when you look at the seven major doctrinal areas in Christianity, what Islam saying is completely different on every single one of them, right? So that's good to know. Historical background in, uh, in brief. Uh, yeah, the word means submission, second largest religion founded by Muhammad. Now he lived from 570 to 632. So you put that on a timeline. You know, there's Abraham. Uh, according to Dr. Honer, the crucifixion was 33 AD, April 3rd, 33 AD. And so now, and I've got 630, uh, 632 is when he died. Uh, I said 621, I think, in the hand. I should say 622 is when they start their calendar based on when he's invited to come to Medina and clean up the city, not just as a preacher, but as the preacher, the mayor, the uh, head of the police department, the head of the militia, and so on. 
Now, one thing you want to beware of is what many Christians and many Americans say. They think that all Arabs are Muslims and all uh, Muslims are Arabs. That's not true. Uh, the Arab world is this group of countries in the light color there. Is that green, pink, something? That's green? Pink? That's yellow. That's green. Okay. That's white. Yeah. Uh, from Iraq to Western Sahara, you got 22 countries there. And 97% of the people who live in those countries are Muslim. Okay, so you may, you, you've got a, if you're a betting person, you've got a 97% chance of being right if you just pick a random Muslim, but 3% are not. So it's not right to say that all Arabs are Muslims. It's also not correct to say that all, uh, Muslims, that all Arabs are Muslim, that all Muslims are, are all, shoot. <laughs> it's wrong to say that all Arabs are Muslim, even though 97% of them are. It's also to say, wrong to say that only Arabs are Muslims because, in fact, the, the largest Muslim country in the world is not in the Middle East or in Af- Northern Africa. It's Indonesia, which is in the Pacific. There's 120 million Muslims in that country, and there's not a lot of Arab. There's not a lot of terrorism in, in uh, Indonesia, which is kind of what I'm leading to. But yeah, there's like 340 million Arabs. And we've only got 325 million in the United States, but it's roughly the same number in all those 22 countries as opposed to us. Uh, Arab is a cultural linguistic trait. What language do Arabs speak? If you say Swahili, you get no credit. Yeah. Uh, it's a cultural trait. So you tend to think they're short and dark, but my, my, my friend, uh, Dr. Uh, Ahmad Shahada is taller than I am and has light hair and light skin. I don't care what color you are, but it's not, uh, primarily a, a ethnic thing. It's a cultural, linguistic thing. Uh, Arabs can be Jewish, Christian, agnostic, or atheist, but 98% of them, I think I said 97%, are Muslim. But uh, it's not true to say that all Muslims are Arabs. In fact, the largest Arab, Muslim country is in the Pacific, right? So if you look at a survey of where the biggest concentrations of, of Muslims live, it's in the Arab world, but here's Indonesia, into the kind of Central Asia, just uh, west of India. So it's a, it's a major dynamic. Now that's the Arabian Peninsula. And for the life of Mecca, he's born here. He gets his first uh, input from the Roman angel Gabriel here. Almost said Roman Gabriel. He was a quarterback for the Rams before you were born. Uh, yeah, some of the stuff you say under pressure. Uh, 622, he goes to Medina. And they say, not, we want you to build a, the first mosque and tell us what, what to do on Fridays. That's when they meet. We want you to take over the whole city based on your system, which he did. By 6.30, he comes back intending to invade Mecca, but they just open the gates. They, they offer no resistance, and he lives his last couple of years, 6.30 to 6.32, Muhammad does, establishing a, an Islamic society there. And then the fun begins after he dies because he didn't really say what should happen after he died. So you get the Sunnis and the Shia arguing about who's the legitimate leader. Now, especially for those of us going to Israel in May, we're going to see uh, what at an architectural level is a beautiful feat of engineering. This structure called the Dome of the Rock is an amazing, uh, beautiful building, but it's not a mosque. It's a commemorative building celebrating the victory of Islam over Christianity and Judaism. Now, remember, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632, Less than 68 years later, after he dies, Muslim armies and missionaries have conquered all of North Africa. They've gone north of Saudi Arabia, all the way through Israel, Syria, uh, into southern Turkey. 
And they built this structure on purpose on the Jewish Temple Mount on top of the location of the temple that had been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. They built that building there to commemorate. It's kind of like a celebration in the end zone, you know, after you score a touchdown. So that's not a mosque. There's a mosque due south of that on the Temple Mount, and we'll show you that when we go to Israel. Some of my wider shots will show that. But I've been showing this picture mainly recently to show you the Mount of Olives, right? But you go down in this valley, Kijon Valley, come up here on Mount Moriah, and that's the Temple Mount. That's where the Jewish temples stood, the first and second one, but hasn't been a temple since then. So let me just say this, that by 700, and that's pretty, that's pretty crazy when you think about it, because he dies in 632, and just a couple generations later, boom, they control a huge amount of real estate, including the Holy Land, all of it, right? Now, let me say one more thing, and we'll have our bottom line. Dr. Pat Kate is a sociologist, missionary. He uh, ministered in the Arab world for 30 years, and his understanding of uh, Arab Muslims, uh, who he, and he thinks these numbers roughly would uh, line up with uh, worldwide Islam, he says there are different categories of Muslims. There are social moderate Muslims that just go along with it for social reasons. There are traditional Muslims that focus on the holidays, try to do the pillars if it's not too difficult. There are nonviolent fundamentalists who take it very seriously, very literally, but they're not violent. They define jihad as their own struggle to be a better Muslim. And then, then there's the category he calls violent fundamentalists. According to Dr. Pat Kate, who lived over there 30 years, so he may know more than I do about it, uh, only 5% of all Muslims in the Arab world, according to him, only 5%, only 120th are violent fundamentalists. But if those numbers hold true worldwide, which he assumes they probably do, then we got a problem. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, 5% is a small percentage, right? Uh, if you're caddying for, uh, for a kutcher in Mexico, and he wants a million, and typically you give 10% to your caddy, That'd be $100,000, but you give the guy $3,000. That's not enough money. I mean, I don't know if you know about that controversy, but first world kind of problems. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, 5% is a small percentage of a whole. It's only 120th. But the problem is, if you got, the, if the pie is 1.8 billion, I think I did the math right. Correct me if later I'm wrong. I'm used to being corrected a lot. But anyway, uh, just to slow the flow down, 1.8 billion is a large number. Five percent of that, I think, if I did math right, is ninety million people. But it's a lot. It's a lot of people. So if he's right about the percentages, we got a problem. <laughs> okay. Now they won't tell you this, but that's ninety million people. Now again, I've said this many times. The vast majority of those folks have motive to kill Jews, Christians, or any Muslim who's not as picky as they are. They kill more Muslims than they do Jews, Jews or Christians. They have they have motive, but most of them don't have means or opportunity. But all you got to do is tell a disenfranchised 19, 20, 21-year-old Palestinian kid who has no sense that God loves him because the religion doesn't teach it, who knows he's done so many bad things and he is not interested in the pillars, that if he would die by helping fly a plane into, an air, into a building and kill a bunch of uh, people who are not Muslims, he's going get, to get a got-to-heaven free card. That sounds like a world of a deal to people like that. So uh, that's that's the reality. It's also true to say that somebody like Muhammad, somebody like not Muhammad Ali, somebody like uh, uh, Osama bin Laden is no representative, no, no more representative of the average Muslim, ninety-five percent of them, than David Koresh 
is representative of the average Christian. Uh, when you have somebody like David Koresh, which I know is before your times, kids, but look it up. Uh, when I saw the coverage of that, it sounded to me like the, the media was saying, look, watch out, Carol. This is what happens to people who take the Bible really seriously. If you take the Bible seriously, you're going to join a group like this, and you're going to be doing all kinds of terrible things to the children and, and wanting to overthrow the government. And I, I always thought, his problem is not he takes the Bible too seriously. His problem is he's a false prophet. You know, his problem is he's totally misinterpreting the Bible, right? Uh, here's a picture of, represented picture of four groups of Muslims on September 12th, 2001. Now what happened on September 11th, 2001? You already know that. This, and you, you know by these women's dress, especially these, they're very strict Muslims. They're, they're fundamentalist Muslims. They're signing a book of condolence in front of the U.S. Embassy in Amman on the 12th. They're saying, we're so sorry this happened. We do not support this. 5% of them do, 95% of them don't. Okay. This is actually in India, but these are Muslims in India burning pictures of Osama bin Laden on the 12th. This is a guy who I'm sure made a, a mock headline, but this was in Baghdad. No for terrorism and sabotage. That's what he's showing there. And these are girls in a Palestinian school in Gaza having a moment of silence for the victims of 9-11. So it's not true that they're all wanting to kill us. It is true a certain percentage uh, feels like they're, that's the only way they're going to get to heaven, and it's a large raw number. So let me end where I started. You know, Galatians, Paul says, even if we come back and tell you a different gospel, even if an angel from heaven tells you, where did Muhammad get his stuff, according to what he said? Got it from the angel Gabriel. Uh, I don't think he got it from, and by the way, when he went home, he told his wife, I'm not sure if I was talking to a, an angel or a jinn. And then later as he thought about it, he said, well, it was, it was the angel Gabriel. A jinn is a, is a demon. Uh, so anyway, he claims that the angel Gabriel told him uh, everything you need to know about God is found in, in Islam. What, what do you say to that? You know, we had it first. <laughs> uh, we do have angelic testimony, but we have Jesus' testimony. So what's the difference between uh, Islam and Christianity? There's a lot of differences. We just covered them in the last 45 minutes. But I'd say ultimately it's the, the person of the risen Christ is the difference, okay? Uh, they, they've got a dead prophet, Muhammad. We've got a risen Savior. Now, what do they say about him? They say he's the Christ, but they redefine Christ. What do they say about his death on the cross? He didn't die at all. See, he, he, not only do they deny the saving power of the cross, they deny his death. They don't want to have him die at all. Because they don't want to say this anyway. Anything he did in his death would possibly save anybody, right? Okay, now you are armed and spiritually dangerous as you think about uh, Islam. And uh, next week we'll move on to our next topic, okay? Whatever that is, it's on the list somewhere, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we don't want to have any um, presumptions of arrogance or uh, even uh, uh, certainly of pride as we look at, at this uh counterfeit, which in so many ways pushes a lot of people's buttons. I mean, you're not lost, you're not sinful, you're just ignorant. If you get enough information, you can earn, you can climb a ladder up to God. Now, you're never going to be sure if you've climbed high enough, but there, you know, that, that's the way you do it. And I think that feeds the uh, religious impulse of fallen humanity that we can do it ourselves, that salvation is a do-it-yourself project. Uh, help us to not fall for the pablum that the God of Islam is the same God as the God of Christianity and Judaism. 
Uh, no Muslim would accept that. They don't believe that. And there's no reason for us to believe that, even though it make us look like uh, savages to some of the elites out there. Uh, but help us to realize that we've got the good news. I think it's bad news when we're telling people you got to be so good you might earn your way to heaven, especially if you die in jihad. Uh, whereas we're saying Christ died for us so we can have eternal life. And so as we look at this, help us to be more aware of what's going on in this very large dynamic that's all over the world. It's not just in the Arab world. It's not just uh, violent fun- fundamentalists. It's, it's a big dynamic. It affects a lot of geopolitics, world economy, world events. But help us to realize that we've got the real thing, and we need to defend it and share it and live it and uh, not be intimidated or snowed by some of the propaganda out there about these other religious movements. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.